Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Hi, everybody. I'm Anna Murad. I am the past infant medical director for TIPQC. I'm delighted to be here today to talk to you about safe sleep and the new AAP policy. I have with me today Melissa and Danielle, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Melissa. I work at um, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, and I'm the quality improvement analyst for the NICU and the newborn nursery. Hi, everyone. My name is Danielle Bookstrom, I'm the quality and safety advisor for the NICU here at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. And so I think I've been working in this space for about 20 plus years, and safe sleep never gets any easier. We always have new families and new patients who need to be educated on safe sleep. I'll let you guys talk a little bit about your experience in the NICU and in the newborn nursery and, and sort of the work that you've been doing. Yeah, I'm actually the team lead for our safe sleep group here at Vanderbilt, and I've been working on it for the last seven years. And we have gone from where the NICU, every patient was blankets, rolls, head of bed up to a much improved, all patients that qualify for safe sleep are flat, no extra blankets. And we definitely still have work to do, but we've come so far. And I became really interested in this work when I started here at Vanderbilt because we would have patients who we had in the NICU for months and a very long time, and we would see them go home, and then we would hear that they had died a sleep-related death. And that really impacted me and made me very passionate about this work, and that's part of why I took it on as a quality improvement project as well. And so my interest within this project, so I, I moved into this role recently, and I heard about the work that Melissa and Dr. Murad had been doing in the department. This is completely avoidable. Safe sleep-related deaths, uh, can they have such an impact within the family. And um, I think it's our duty as nurses and providers to provide this education to our families. Um, and so that's why I came on board to this project. Well, we're certainly so appreciative of both of you. I just want to go through some of the Tennessee Safe Sleep data. It comes from the Tennessee Safe Sleep dashboard that you can find on the Department of Health website. And I think it's interesting that our total infant mortality rate did decrease slightly in 2020 to 6.3 per 1,000, but we're still above the U.S. rate of total infant mortality. And when you narrow that down to safe to unsafe sleep or sleep-related death, that accounts for about one in four infant deaths in the state of Tennessee. And to put that in perspective, that's 115 infants who died in 2020 in our state. And if we can even pre- prevent one of these deaths, then our work is definitely worth it. And certainly we'd like to prevent all 115. That would be the goal. The main reasons across the state were unsafe bedding and toys in the bed, that they were not in approved sleep space, or that there were other people in the bed with them where they were co-sleeping, or that they were not placed fully on their back. 
And so those are some of the reasons that we see out in the community associated with these deaths. They're also the same reasons that we see when we do our internal hospital audits. And so definitely reinforces to us that it's important to model safe sleep from the beginning at the hospital. I just want to mention to you that you can order safe sleep materials from the Department of Health. If you go onto the Tennessee Department of Health website, there's a a nice link, an email where you can order um, safe sleep materials for your business, your office, your hospital, and we would encourage you all to do that. Um, So my next question for you all is when we're talking about the TIPQC project, do you want to talk a little bit about what we found during the project and the auditing process and that type of thing? Yeah, so we had already been working on Safe Sleep here at Vanderbilt, but we joined the TIPQC Safe to Sleep Project along with about 12 other hospitals in the state. And we would meet monthly and we would send our audit data in. So we would capture a whole audits, like a day of audits um, for us. So we would capture any patient in the newborn nursery and any patient in the NICU and evaluate whether or not they were in safe sleep. If they were, great. We would tell the nurses that they did a great job. If they weren't, then we would teach the parents and the nurses what we found that was not correct. And then we would send all of that data into TIPQC. And then we would follow in a a monthly meeting about what we had done that month, what we were seeing, what other hospitals were seeing. And then we kind of would bounce off each other. Like a lot of things like I was like, oh, we haven't tried that here. Let me try that as well. And we found, particularly in our newborn nursery, we were able to increase our compliance a lot along the terms of that project. So it did a lot of good for us to be able to talk to other hospitals and see what they were doing and know that they were also having the same problems that we were. Yeah, I think overall, the project showed about a 22% increase in safe sleep audits that were compliant over the course of the project, which is huge. I mean, that's a huge impact that we've made across the state with that project. And I think back to your point, a lot of the hospitals were experiencing the same themes across the project when they were looking at their audits. Going on to the new AAP guidance. So I think we really want to dig in a little bit deeper on this new policy. And I'm going to go through the level A recommendations and just ask you guys some of your pointers or tips or best suggestions on how you would want to teach those And just for our listeners, Level A recommendations from the AAP are based on consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. And so that means for each one of these steps that there's pretty robust evidence out there that they do make an impact in decreasing sleep-related deaths. So the first one is back to sleep. Any pointers that you guys have? I think for newborn nursery, that one's pretty much under control for us. I think we do a a really nice job of making sure our babies are placed on their back. But let's talk a little bit about NICU. And at what point do you move them to their back? At what point is it important to, to make sure the parents understand that they need to be on their back? Yeah, so for our NICU babies, when they are in their acute illness phase, we do place them on their sides and their stomach for their like to assist with respiratory issues and help them grow. But once they reach about 32 weeks corrected, we start to transition them to only be on their back and start to remove some of those supports. And then in our unit, if they're stable by 34 weeks, we expect them to be on safe sleep so that we have as long as possible to model for the family how they need to sleep at home. I think that's really important. The next point is using a firm mattress and also no soft items in the bed. So 
when you're giving advice to families about what type of mattress to purchase or what they should be looking for, do you guys have any tips or pointers that you would suggest? I mean, there are federal requirements for crib mattresses. So I always tell families that the best mattress is one that fits your crib tightly. You have crib sheets that fit that mattress tightly and there's no gaps or anything. Yeah, and that's I think that's incredibly important is pointing out the consumer product safety regulations that are federal. Super important that you look for a, a mattress that's been approved. I completely agree. I think when you're testing out sleep spaces, your child's head should never make an indention in the mattress, right? And you shouldn't have anything that's particularly soft. It should be, as you mentioned, well-fitted. And when you put the sheet on the mattress, it shouldn't turn the corners. Like those those corners should lay flat and seal quite nicely around. Then I think it's really important when we go to talk about bumpers and mesh side rails. You know, we're, we're very lucky. We've got a new law that is going into effect middle of this year, right? And so you, know, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm very excited about that law because it's something that we've been saying for years, like bumpers, inclined sleeping spaces, all of that, a lot of is marketed with babies sleeping in it, like the rock and play and all of that. And those things were not safe to sleep in, but families often do what they see or what their friends did. So I love that this law has been passed to help reduce those things in the marketplace. I mean, I can echo that, especially the bumpers. Um, that's a, a creative way to make your, your crib look nice and very fashionable. But in reality, we're seeing a lot of deaths related to it. Right. So going back to the level A recommendations, I'm going to go through the next few and let you chime in if you have additional suggestions or things that, that you would want families to know. Breast milk. So we know that breastfeeding decreases your risk for sleep-related deaths or SIDS. They recommend six months in the family room, but in a safe, separate sleep space. A pacifier for naps and bedtime once breastfeeding is well established. Getting prenatal care and having good vaccinations. And then the one, the other thing I like is really keeping it simple. So a lot of the positioners and direct-to-consumer pulse oxes and things like that just aren't needed. So do you have any suggestions or things you'd want to chime in on that? Yeah, that's actually one of my top points that I teach families. I a lot of times tell you all you need is a crib, a sheet for it, and nothing else. Maybe a sleep sack, but everything that is sold, like bumpers, stuffed animals, positioners, a lot of that stuff is just not safe. And then it's just extraneous things. I Families usually laugh at me, but I'm always like, if it's cute and it looks nice, you don't need it in the bed. That's a good point. But, you know, they try to get families to buy so many unnecessary things these days, and you can end up spending your fortune on things that really aren't necessary and potentially could be dangerous. So the other points are no smoking, no alcohol, tobacco, or um, drug use, or marijuana. And certainly we would want our babies not to be around those things, especially for folks who are going to be taking care of a young baby. Tummy time is another one that they point out can be really helpful. It helps to strengthen those neck muscles, and you really want to increase your amount of tummy time. It can really start from birth, and then you just gradually increase the amount of time that you're allowing the baby to be on their tummy while you're watching them. And then the next two points are, or actually there's three more points, that healthcare should model good, safe sleep practices, which I think, um, Melissa, you hit on quite nicely earlier, that media should be aware of the portrayal of safe sleep 
So I know that we've had some social media that we've had to be really careful about these babies are being watched as these pictures are being made. And you want to be sure that you're making it really clear to families that this is not how we want the baby to be sleeping. And then promoting safe sleep practices. And so I think as a healthcare provider, we sometimes think, oh, the families already know this. But there's really no reason that every family should know this. And, and it's certainly for different cultures, for folks who may not be experienced with young babies, they may not know. So some any pointers for those types of things? Yeah, we actually run into that quite a lot. Like I, whenever I'm talking to families, especially if their grandmothers are there, they always are like, well, in my day, they slept, but slept on their stomachs. But the back to sleep recommendations are over 30 years old at this point. So there's still cultural things where people teach families that their babies can sleep on their stomach or they slept on their stomach. And so a lot of times it's just education about that, like explaining that sleeping on your stomach increases the risk. It also increases the risk of aspiration if you do spit up. And then also culturally, a lot of families use blankets and hats and lots of things like they're very concerned about babies being cold. So a lot of times it's educating about that the baby being too warm is actually more risky in terms of overheating and um, the the risk that the extra blankets have to the baby and being able to cover their face. Exactly. I know we've fought the hat battle around here quite a bit. And, you know, I think we've tried all kinds of cute things like hats off at 24 hours and giving the hats as a little keepsake. And we've gotten so accustomed to seeing a newborn with the little cute hat on. And we forget that those really, number one, they're not particularly evidence-based for term babies for any kind of heat control. Um, and so we're, we're kind of using them just because we've always done it. But certainly after 24 hours, a, a healthy term baby should not need a hat. Um, and so really educating our families that, that they're not safe to use in a sleep space. How do you guys tackle that in the NICU area? We, when those recommendations came out, I was very excited because we had already been doing the no hats here. So I was very happy that we were kind of ahead of it. But we also have done really well in the NICU to where we have very little hat use at all. There may be a small period when they wean out of their isolate into an open crib that we use one for a brief period. And if a baby does get cold, we add it back for a short period until they prove whether they can stay warm or if they need to go back into an incubator. But other than that, we don't use a lot of hats. And we have had lots of people in the community that have always donated hats to us. And we were able to teach them and tell them that we no longer accept those donations. And a lot of them have channeled into donating something different for us. Right. I think that's important. I think certainly using a hat for a cute little outfit when you're up and at them and ready to go somewhere is fine. But when your baby's ready to sleep, they really should not be wearing a hat. I mean, most of us don't wear a hat when we go to bed, right? But certainly for a baby, it can be quite dangerous. So what are some other things that you wish parents knew not to put in the crib or not to bring to the hospital? One of the things I love to teach families, and I used to do this when I worked as a nanny as well, is we don't recommend any use of like blankets directly under the baby to protect the linen. But a lot of times I teach families to do a waterproof pad and then a sheet and then another waterproof pad and a sheet and layer it so that that way the sheet is on top and it's complete safe sleep space. But if it gets dirty, they can just take off the top layers and not have to change the whole bed. 
Oh, that's a clever idea. You would just need to make sure it's tightly fitted yes, for so sure. Yeah. Fit. Most of the time you can only get two on, but in the middle of the night, that's probably going to save you. Right, right. And not have a loose blanket in that bed. Yes, for sure. and there's no blankets. Yeah. If I could pick one thing for families not to bring to the hospital, it would be those thick, fluffy blankets. Sort of the bane of my my rounding is, is taking the fluffy blanket out of the bed. And, you know, you really want families to understand that using a sleep sack or a sleep blanket, something that's enclosed and can zip up that can't come loose is, is really important. Let's talk a little bit about safe skin-to-skin positioning and use of slings and swaddles and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we do at least one hour of skin-to-skin after birth if mom and baby are both stable. And we do a lot of skin-to-skin in the NICU throughout their stay because it's been proven to be so beneficial. But we usually use the same guidelines that we use after delivery where we want the mom to be able to see the baby's face. We want the baby's face to be clear of any blankets. And if mom is sleepy or not feeling her best, we always want to have another person present to help monitor the baby as well. Right. I think that and those same guidelines would go if you're using a sling or um, any sort of wearable item. You've got to be able to see your baby's face and they need to be positioned in a safe position so that they can breathe appropriately. So let's talk a little bit about inclines. You know, there's a a great, as we mentioned earlier, the new law that's going to go into or has gone into effect that basically has made anything greater than a 10% incline to be illegal to, to use. So what are some of the ways that you talk to families if their baby needs an NG or if they've got reflux or or any of those types of uh, special needs? Yeah, so we actually fought, fight that battle a lot because adults and we have muscle mass and stuff, we do prop up our heads. We It does help us to be hired for reflux. But our neonates, it just doesn't work like that for them. Most of the time, if we put them on an inclined surface, they just slide down that surface until they're at risk for airway compression because their chin drops down. Or they actually spit up more because their stomach is now like bent in half. And we just found that like the feeding tubes that we use are so small that it doesn't really increase the reflux. And so we kind of have gone through that a lot. That was one of the things that it took a long time for nurses to realize is that two feedings do not equal that the head of the bed has to be up. And we worked through that by kind of showing them some, we have some pictures of baby's airways, like from the side and how chin to chest can be so risky because they just don't have the muscle to stay, to keep their own airway open at that age. Exactly. I think the other thing that's been a little bit trendy lately are the use of a weighted sleeper. There's some on the market that have cutesy names. And I think this new policy has been really clear in calling out that these aren't safe. They're not evidence-based. They can overheat your baby and they really shouldn't be used. The other thing that the policy makes a a mention of are baby boxes. And it's really clear to point out that those aren't evidence-based either. And so if you're giving counseling advice to a family who doesn't have access to a CPSC-approved safe sleep item, like a pack and play or a crib, what advice would you give them? There are a lot of organizations out there that work with our hospital so that if a family doesn't have a safe sleep space for their baby, we can help them get one. Because a pack and play works just as well, especially like it can go up to age one or beyond. And so we kind of 
discuss with the family when they're here. Do they have a place for baby to sleep? And what is it? And we want, we connect them with appropriate resources so that if they don't have a place, we can get them one. Right. I think for the state of Tennessee, that all the home visiting, so if you use the CHAMP program, the home visiting programs, you can make a referral for a safe sleep place. We have a great program with our emergency responders called the DOSE program, D-O-S-E, where they can help with safe sleep items as well. And then I think if you really are struggling and you don't have immediate access, the things that we would tell you are to use a laundry basket or a drawer, something with a nice firm bottom that can protect your baby. But the biggest thing to remember is not to co-sleep. That's the other thing I think is really clear in this policy is there's no They were very direct in saying there is no safe scenario in which to co-sleep, where I think uh, there are a lot of maneuvering around on previous policies that may not have been quite as clear. This one is is abundantly clear, I think, that, that that is not recommended. Yes, I agree. We know that that's one of the biggest risk factors, and a lot of there's lots of discussion about, well, I do this to make it safe, but the evidence shows us that we don't, that we aren't, there is no way to do it safely because the babies are found with their mothers or their siblings or their parents. And that most of the time when people are telling us, oh, well, I know how to do it safely, they have actually just gotten lucky. Right. They found a greater than tenfold increase in the baseline risk for a, a co-sleeping with an impaired person, which I hear the word impaired person and I think, drug use, right? Or alcohol or, or something like that. We have to remember it can be an antihistamine. It can be an excessively tired new mom. You know, there there's fatigue goes into impairment as well. And so I think just stepping back for a minute, I think what you said, you got lucky is the right way to think about it. There is a new study also that, that came out recently that showed that while families may put the baby down in a safe sleep position at the beginning of the night, when they get up in the middle of the night to do a feed, they often will, will put them back in an unsafe sleep position. So what are some of the things you would advise families to avoid that issue? I usually try to talk to my families about having a plan. Moms who are going to breastfeed, which we want you to breastfeed, will tell you to set an alarm for however long the feed usually takes. That way you can't actually fall back to sleep on accident. And we also teach you, this sounds counterintuitive, but we want you to feed the baby in your bed with all the blankets and pillows removed away from your space because the risk of you falling asleep in your bed is lower than falling asleep on a couch or a chair. But we want that alarm set. We want to make sure that you won't fall asleep for very long because we want the baby to be back into their safe sleep space as quickly as possible. We want you to have a plan. We want you to talk to your friends or your uh, partner and try to get like plans so that you can get enough sleep because that is one of the risks is that you get so overtired that you fall asleep. Yeah, and I think making it super easy. So have that pack and play or that crib or that bassinet right there beside your bed so you can take the baby out, get the baby fed, put the baby right back down in their own separate safe sleep space. We talk a lot about the ABCs of safe sleep with the A being alone, but people don't like that word. They don't want to think about their baby of being alone, right? They want their baby to be close. And so we want the baby to be close, but in their own sleep space. I think that's a really important point. 
The other thing that I think we would want our listeners to know is we don't fully know why babies are going to be at higher risk for sleep-related deaths. You know, the current thought is that there's sort of a triple risk model and that you end up in the right period of time. You end up with a vulnerable infant who's placed in an unsafe sleep environment that increases their risk for death. You know, particularly that two to four month age range is going to be a, a highly, highly vulnerable time for our infants. And so certainly we want to be concentrating on safe sleep for the entire time that the infant is going to be at risk. But that two to four month time is going to be an especially vulnerable time for our babies. That is true. And that did actually remind me, I always teach families to make sure that everyone that is caring for their baby also knows safe sleep guidelines, because a lot of times our child care is our parents, our friends, or like home daycares and stuff. We want to make sure that everyone that cares for that baby puts them down the exact same way that you do, because there have been studies that indicated there's actually a a higher risk when babies are placed in unsafe sleep positions that have typically been placed in safe sleep. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think in making sure they have a safe sleep place, wherever you're going to be dropping them off, you know, be sure to ask those questions. If you're going to be leaving your baby at a daycare, you need to know where they're going to be put to bed and they need to be put there for their naps too. It's not not something you don't want them sleeping in an inclined sleeper of any sort. So once your baby does go to sleep, let's say they went to sleep in an inclined inclined device of some sort, it is really important that you take them and put them into a flat, safe sleep place if you're not going to be right there with them. You really need to get them and put them in their own safe sleep space. Yes, I agree. So do you have any advice about swaddling or the best ways to swaddle or when you would want to stop swaddling? Yeah, so we actually highly recommend swaddling. We use it a lot in the NICU and the newborn nursery because when infants are very young, they have a very exaggerated startle. And we know that if we swaddle them, they can they sleep a little bit better and it also helps them calm themselves. But we want to make sure that we discontinue any type of swaddling before the baby shows any signs of rolling, which is usually around two months of age. That's also we teach our families to make sure not to leave them on any type of surface that is not a safe sleeping environment because you never do know when a child is going to roll over for the first time. That's a very good point. I think I've had families tell me before, oh, my baby sleeps so much better on their stomach, right? I'm sure you all have heard that too. And and I often will say, yeah, they sleep so much more soundly that it can cause them not to breathe appropriately Mm -hmm. and they, they don't wake up. And, you know, you never want to be in that position. And I think this is one of the things that we may sound really stringent, but it's every single time you put your baby down, they have to be put on their back in their separate sleep space in a safe sleep position. Mm -hmm. Because it really does affect the family so much, like 115 babies. That's like we always have taught our staff. Usually the number of babies in Tennessee is equal to five kindergarten classes. That's five whole classes of children that did not survive. That's a lot of families that were like terribly bereaved by this loss. So we, we are very stringent in our staff and we try to be very clear that we, we're trying to save their lives. We want them to grow up. We want them to live. And the period where they do not sleep well is usually it's such such a short period of time overall. It feels like it takes it lasts months, but we want them to sleep safely every time we put them to sleep because 
we don't, you don't know what time something bad could happen. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you all so much for being with us today. I think this is incredibly important work. We want to spread the message far and wide. We want all of our community partners to know how important safe sleep is. And we would encourage you all to visit the Tennessee Department of Health website. The other sites that we would recommend would be Cribs for Kids and Charlie's Foundation. And so do you have any other suggestions of places to go for safe sleep? Those are the places I usually send most families. Charlie's Kids in particular has really short, small videos that are easy to share. And I don't know if we touched on the Tennessee Board of Health. They also have some good signage about ABCs, which I think it is Cribs for Kids, but that'd be a great resource for our listeners as well. Excellent. All right. Thank you all. We appreciate your time. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.